the third article uh, that I saw was the one I saw on Facebook. It was uh, from NPR. <laughs> it was written by Scott Simon and so several people. Scott Simon, Samantha Balaban, and James Dobex. Sorry, I'm saying those names wrong. <laughs> September 7th, 2019, titled Veterinarians Are Killing Themselves. An online group is there to listen and help. Mm-hmm. So this is looking forward to yeah. what can we do to help, yeah. what can we do to change things. Yeah. Um, discussing the organization called Not One More Vet. Mm-hmm. It stated in that article that male veterinarians are two times more likely, 2.1 times more likely than the general population, and that female veterinarians are 3.5 times more likely to die by suicide. And it discusses the stre- all the stresses of being a vet. So these are kind of the, the points that I make towards the end, but um, the pressure of student loans. I mean, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> You're, you're getting a doctorate in veterinary medicine. That is not a cheap education. Yeah. Uh, and they, they quote 140000 plus as an <laughs> average. Yeah. Um, I hear that. My master's wasn't cheap either. Yeah. Uh, and that also that their, though the yearly salary is generally adequate, it's still less than half of physicians and surgeons out there. Yeah. So even though you have a degree, a doctorate in medicine, you're still making way less mm-hmm. than your average doctor or surgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the emotional strain of going between um, elation and anxiety, like you were mm-hmm. discussing earlier, mm-hmm. um, those emergencies and euthanasias yeah. versus vaccinations and neuterings. Yeah. You know, yeah. something as simple as I need my pet's annual yeah. shots. Yeah. To you know what happened this afternoon. And it is, yeah. It's from like one extreme to another. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, discussing how isolating it can be. Often working in an office alone, or mm-hmm. even in a city alone or rurally so mm-hmm. although we have a fair amount of veterinarians in the area mm-hmm. um, your clinic like you were saying earlier is fairly small and so you know long hours cause relationship fractures you don't necessarily have a way of debriefing in between visits mm-hmm. I'm sure that your office staff is helpful but they might not have that same ability to process as yeah. another veterinarian would. right yeah yeah and, of course, being the target of online trolling, threats that uh, blame veterinarians for deaths, mm-hmm. causing some people to just straight up quit or lose their business yeah. because of craziness like mm-hmm. you don't sell cat toys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that also veterinarians are 2.5 times more likely to use pharmaceuticals because yes. they have access. Yes. I had not even thought about mm-hmm. that, but of course, mm-hmm. I'm actually surprised it's not higher than that. Yeah. Um, I mean, phenobarbital used to be used for the death penalty, mm-hmm. and I think they were going to try to use it for death with dignity, except for that the company that made it is out of the country. In Europe. And doesn't agree with the death penalty, yes. and so they won't sell it yes. for that reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I just didn't, it didn't even occur to me. Of course there's access to right. lethal medications. Yeah, and they, I think... Well, I had thoughts for each one of those points, but um, I guess we'll start with that. Is um, I think that's why more suicide attempts are successful in veterinary medicine because you, I, you know, it's very easy to set up an IV pump and you have euthazole and you can access that. And you know how to access a vein. You can do that. So it's, you're not going to see the suicide attempts that were not successful and then you go get help, you're, you're going to have successful suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've actually read that oftentimes suicides are 
you would think, well, maybe they're very planned out. People think for a long time, they know exactly how they're gonna, gonna do it. Oftentimes suicides are just, uh, you've had a really, really bad day mm-hmm. and you're really tired and you're really hungry and you're really isolated and you just, everything seems so bleak to you <laughs> in that moment that you have no, you feel like there's no option. And you are working late and you're the only one in the clinic and you walk out and you're like, here's my, here are my control drugs right here and I can use these. Mm-hmm. And um, what, that's one of those, the group that they're, they're working on is trying to set up like even things like putting stickers on the control drug safe and saying like, you know, mm. here's this, here's, reach out here, call this number. Oh, nice. And um, like making it so that there's, you need at least two people to access any of these medications. But, you know, most of these practices are like, um, <laughs> you know, something is being proud of him. <laughs> A lot of these practices, it's, you know, practice owners who, they are in control of everything. They can have access to these drugs. There's no one else to tell them they can't get them. And so it's really easy to do it. So I think that's a big component. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that there's been a push within the last year of like focusing on that aspect of it at least because that's something that we can readily control or try to control at least to mm-hmm. like say like don't have access to drugs and here's a number to call if you're feeling like you, you're having suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, yeah, that group, um, the new group, I've seen a lot of that on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's a really great, it's a really great source for communication because you are not alone. Like any thought you have of feeling like you're having compassion fatigue or decision fatigue or imposter, imposter syndrome or anything. trauma. Vicarious (laughs) trauma, PTSD everything that you're feeling you're not the only one who's feeling that mm-hmm. and if you can talk to someone else who has gone through that you will you know you will it'll be much easier for you to face the next day they stress a lot that it's uh, that it is a peer support group not therapy yeah, necessarily right. yeah um I personally have a bias for that I think everybody should be in therapy yeah but, yeah um but it's not Let's get over that stigma, too. Therapy yeah. isn't a bad thing. Right. Absolutely. I feel very strongly about that. I'm very open talking about the fact that I've been I've been through therapy. Oh, yeah. Me, too. Came out of school and said, like, you know, all I've known is being a student and all I've known is doing. And now I'm like, I'm not even a real person. I'm not a whole person. I don't even know who my genuine self is. Mm. And therapy is what helped find that for me and to be present and you know when I'm there I'm present mm-hmm. and um to just be a more complete person and I think everyone needs that agree and, <laughs> and I think everyone needs to find their coping skills and that's unique to in- individuals you know for me it's going out and being in the woods and kayaking and paddleboarding and being with Sweeney and you know that's what my that's what makes me happy it's hard not to be happy when you see him bouncing around. Like yeah, <laughs> even when he's naughty, I kind of like that. <laughs> um, you know, so you need to identify what that is. But, you know, what's interesting is that I think our personality type is oftentimes our, again, because we become this type because of something that happened in our childhood or how we're raised, it's oftentimes that our needs and what we like is pushed down so far. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't even know what we like. And it takes therapy 
to figure that out yeah. and to say that like this is what I like this is what I'm gonna do these are my boundaries this is what I'm gonna do for myself I'm gonna be kind to myself and because that's a learned thing it's not easy and giving yourself permission to be kind to absolutely yourself. Yeah. yeah I deserve to be kind to myself. Yes. Thank you. Some <laughs> yeah. therapist did an amazing job for you. <laughs> so thank you to Dr. Jackie's therapist. <laughs> so uh, I do have one more article, but I kind of want to say that at the end because it's mm -hmm. really going forward, more yeah. things we can do. Um, but the big points that I took away from those three articles, and we've talked about some of this, but healthcare is expensive. Yeah. All healthcare is expensive. Yeah. Uh, the federal government does not see people and animals the same. Yeah. Let's let's face facts. People are or animals are considered um, owned. Yeah, they're property. They're property. Yeah. And the federal government is never going to step in. There, I cannot foresee a time ever in our future that no pets are going to be paid for by Medicaid. It's just not going to well, happen. Well, you know, we're still working on taking care of people. Right. So exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think and that's that. a whole other ten episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So we have to think about the fact that even though people that are bringing their pets to the veterinarian because they love their pets, they see their pets as family members. Mm -hmm. um, that work is not free. Right. And yeah. veterinarians deserve to be reimbursed for the work that they do. Yeah. Think about pet insurance. I mean, I mm -hmm. I have been fortunate enough to have the funds to be able to pay for my animals mm -hmm. when they've needed things. Yeah. Um, but I am looking at getting pet insurance yeah. because my dog is only one. Yeah. And he's got a lifetime of what happens if something, yep. ha you know, I'm yep. not necessarily, I don't have all the funds in the world. If something happens, I want to be able to take care of him. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm a really bit big advocate for pet insurance. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially now they're much better than they used to be, and so they really really help. Like our, my clients who really can just do anything that we need to do are the ones who have pet insurance, mm -hmm. um, and you get it young. You want to get it young before there's any pre-existing condition. Right. You want to be really careful about the insurance that you pick because there are some that have fine fine print saying they will not cover like cruciate injuries or orthopedic conditions. Or... I saw that a little bit as I was researching mm -hmm. the, the kind of five main ones that came up. Yeah. Um, you want to be, yeah, you really want to be careful. And then, of course, like any company, things can change where they, you know, increase the rates or they drop coverage and you have to be really mindful of what you're picking. But it's becoming much easier to get it now, much more affordable. Um, I even considered it for my own dog when I when I got him as a puppy. I mean, I can do the majority of his care, but there's going to be things that maybe he would need an advanced surgery I can't do or needs to be in the ICU setting that I can't provide. Or, and it's my own dog, and sometimes I lose my brain with my own dog, and I can't do anything. <laughs> so I even thought about it for myself. Um, but one of my staff members um, has another smooth fox terrier, Sweeney's best friend, Watson, and she got um, she got health insurance for Watson. And so it's really, it's really a great thing that we can do. Um, and if you are going to sit down, if you're going to be financially sound and you're going to sit down, you're going to look at it and you can say, okay, well, I can spend this much money every month on pet insurance, or I can take that much money every month and put it away for savings. Right. Now, I completely understand that's not realistic in many situations where um, I, I think in this country, the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical expenses for human medical expenses right. right right and so the majority of people do not have you know savings accounts where they can pay for expenses or even medical insurance or any yeah anything yeah anything and so i understand that that's not realistic for many situations but my um counterpoint to that is that having a pet is a privilege i feel strongly about this mm -hmm. and you know 
you are taking on that responsibility when you take that pet, whether it was a free pet, shelter pet, or a pet that you paid for There's at the no breeder. There's no such thing as a free pet. They should all be, yeah, exactly. They should all be treated equally in mm -hmm. their care because I've gotten that from clients before and that's a, you know, an example of moral stress for me as a veterinarian to have someone tell you, well, I'm not going to pay spend as much money on my cat's care because it was just a shelter cat, but I am going to on my purebred dog. That hurts me. I do not want to hear that. You yeah, know? that hurts me. And I'm me. not going to agree with you, so don't expect me to agree with you, you know? <laughs> um, so, um, but it's, it's a privilege to have a pet. And yeah, so maybe don't have one if you're going to think that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or don't get a Frenchie. Or don't get a, <laughs> oh, you know, like don't... The Frenchie is the reason I'm not a veterinarian. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Oh, I bet, but... Mm. Um, there's, I have come across this many, too many times where people are talking to me about how much money they spent on their purebred German Shepherd, and then the German Shepherd is sick and it needs care and they have no money. Well, why did you spend three thousand dollars on this dog? And you, and then and then you go to Petco and you spend several hundred dollars on the toys and accessories for this dog, and then I tell you you need to do a you know fifty dollar exam with you know vaccines and you give me a hard time for asking for too much money. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not acceptable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just no way around that. Like that is just, you have, at some point you have to be responsible, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there are things that can come up. There are some crazy expenses that can come up and that's where having pet insurance will really help. If you have a, a dachshund that has a, a disc that blows mm -hmm. and that's a, you know, $7,000 surgery by the neurologist. That's a huge expense. Most people can't pay that. Most people can't put that on their credit card. That's a right. huge expense. But if you have pet insurance, you might be able to pay for that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great thing. I really encourage people to look into that. Um, it is expensive um, running a veterinary hospital. And this whole thing, vets are only in it for the money. You have no idea what the overhead is like. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. to have the equipment that we have. We have state-of-the-art equipment. We are, as a general practitioner, we do everything. We do dentistry. We do dermatology. We do neurology. We do anesthesia. We do surgery. We do our internal medicine. There's a lot of equipment mm -hmm. that it goes into having all of that care. Um, Plus the cost of the building itself. And the building staff. itself, the staff. And, you know, I mean, we feel really strongly like we want to pay our staff well. We want our staff to have a good quality of life because that's another huge issue is not even just talking about it from the veterinarian's perspective, but talking about it from like a vet tech, you know, perspective or mm -hmm. assistant perspective. There are so many that are, are make minimum wage. It's awful. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of expenses from school. They have so much knowledge, so much skill. They need to be paid appropriately. And so that's how, you know, in our clinic, we really try to make sure we pay people appropriately because they have so much to offer. And you pay people appropriately. They have a good quality of life. They can give more back to their clients and their patients. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's really darn expensive. So it's trying to say that, like, we're just gouging. We're just trying to make money. It's like, you know, we're just, we're really just trying to get by, you know? <laughs> we're just from day to day. And like, you know, you, you mentioned in an article, the cost of education. Mm -hmm. I graduated in 2010 with $250,000 in debt. Ooh. Yeah. This gave me flushes. Yeah. You so, got a hot flash from that. <laughs> yeah. That 
it was tremendous. And I was 26, and I, it was like Monopoly money. I had no idea what that meant. I just right. every year signed on the dotted line and said, yes, give me this loan so I can go to school and, be, and have this dream come true since I was nine years old over becoming a veterinarian. Exactly. I had no idea about APRs or compounding interest or how I would pay for this. I just, okay, this is good. Fine. Mm-hmm. I want to be a vet. That's what I'm <laughs> going to do. And I did it. I did the hard part. I got through school. This is the hard part, right? Um, and it's... Oh, yeah, it is a huge, it's a huge burden, and it's really scary to think that, like, when you're getting really burned out and you're really tired and you're working, you're working too hard, the option is not there, for me personally, the option is not there to work part-time because I have so much debt. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think uh, several cases I've seen recently of veterinarians suiciding, I know that finances are a huge part of the stressors. And even like practice owners, they take on a practice and it's not making the money that they need it to make and they're going under and they have student loans and they have families to provide for and it's just, it looks like there's no alternative, mm-hmm. not, no way out. Um, and I and I will always say this too, whenever I talk about student loans, and again, that could be a whole other few hours, <laughs> but I don't even mind the idea of paying for my education. I, I think I got a great education. Um, I'm very thankful for the education that I got. I know it was it cost a lot of money to educate me. I'm fine with paying back. I just want fair terms for my loan. Mm-hmm. You know, my interest rate is 7.4 percent, and it and the interest compounds daily. That's high. So I pay more money every month on my student loans than I do on my mortgage. And so that is a huge, and it's all federal loans too. I don't right. even have any private loans. It's all yeah, federal loans. Yeah, I have federal loans too, and they're yeah. they're not. Quite, I don't think they're quite that. I have to go back and look now, but yeah. they're not zero percent like people probably think they are. Oh no, no. Even if my student loans had the fair terms as a mortgage, I would be, I wouldn't even complain. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a huge thing. You you don't go into veterinary medicine because you want money. You don't go into veterinary medicine because you want the prestige of being a, a doctor. You go into veterinary medicine because you want to help animals and you want to help promote the human-animal bond and because you like science and because you want to challenge and because you want to work hard. And that's why we're at this place right now. <laughs> it's funny. I didn't even think of the component of liking science, but of course you would have to because yeah. medicine. <laughs> oh, you have to be a huge nerd. Yeah. Biology in general. Like, you have oh. to like love school and love taking notes and highlighting and... <laughs> You're being a good boy. Yeah, for once. <laughs> uh, point two, I, I said, is that veterinarians go into this work because of their deep love of animals. So the mm-hmm. fact that they're bullying or targeting veterinarians with these media stories mm-hmm. can ruin that work. And could listeners out there do this work? Could you euthanize someone's pet and two minutes later walk in with a smile and vaccinate new puppies? Yeah. I mean... The emotional toll, I just, again, want to take a moment. I know we talked about that when we first started, but the fact that you said you do at least one euthanasia a day. Right. That in itself, even Mm -hmm. though I am with you, I strongly feel it is necessary. Yeah. I still can't imagine the emotional toll that takes, especially when it has been an animal you've been with its whole life. And you have a bond with that animal. Yeah. You know. I think that as a veterinarian... You are, sadness and grief and death is just so close to the surface all the time. 
You know, and I guess I haven't really thought about it much for a while because I've been doing this so long. <laughs> but um, I do very vividly remember the first euthanasia I ever did when I first graduated. And the... You guys didn't do euthanasias in school at all? Um, I did euthanasias as a student, mm. but being the one to be the veterinarian... To make the call? To make the call mm. and to do it was a very big distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we certainly were, as a student, um, especially large animal, I, I did plenty of euthanasia as large animal as a student, and then I did times when it's like, yes, I'm the one injecting the solution into the catheter as a student, but the first time I did it as a veterinarian, where that was my, I went through that process with the client of making the decision and then doing the euthanasia, I will forever remember the feeling of the stillness in the room mm-hmm. after I, after that animal passed. And to be honest, it's not something that I really even acknowledge as much anymore because I do so many of them. But it's true. It, it was a huge impact on me. The very first one I did as my grown-up veterinarian self, <laughs> um, I will forever remember that, that feeling of acknowledging that stillness that the animal has passed and that I did that. Mm-hmm. And again, like we said, how we started this conversation, I can do it because I know I'm doing the right thing. But it is still a big deal that I'm doing that. Yeah, it is. And I think it is important to acknowledge that. And and it good to remind myself of like how I felt the first time I did it and acknowledge that just because you do it all the time doesn't mean that it doesn't have a significance. Mm-hmm. And. I think with anything, how you're going to handle handle your emotions and handle your mental health is by acknowledging them, right? Like, it's really important to acknowledge when you're sad. And it's really important to put to words why you feel that way. Mm-hmm. And then you can process it and handle it, you know? And, yeah, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Well, and they're, and they're not all easy. I they're mean, not, without getting yeah. into specifics, you and I were involved in a in a very challenging euthanasia. And I always yeah. wondered, I knew my intention when I came back to see you yeah, yeah. was to be supportive. Right. But I always yeah. wondered what your thoughts were when here's this person who yeah. could very likely come in raging and angry mm-hmm. as if it was your fault. Right. Which it clearly wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the thankfully... The majority of the euthanasias we do are extremely smooth and extremely peaceful, and that's what we strive for. Um, but it's always a stressful event as a veterinarian because you, that's what you want for them. You mm-hmm. want them to say goodbye in that peaceful way. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certainly things, because the the body is a not a controlled thing, and you can't predict sometimes how medications will react in the individual's body or what's going on medically at that time with how you know what their fluid status is what their what their what their heart is doing what's happening in their their brains that sometimes you know that the routine things that you do with your protocols for your medicine may not result in quite the peaceful scenario that you want to have your patient and your client and luckily those are very infrequent um i haven't had anything like that in quite some time but it does happen, and then those are the ones that, that you carry for a long time. 
and you just try to make the best. You just try to, you know, figure out a way to, to get through it and to get through it with the client and um, in the end find that peaceful ending. But yeah, it's stressful. It's, it's really stressful. I think a, another big part of the euthanasia thing is to feel like, you know, it's we get to that point because I have recommended that to the client. And there are many times when they ask that of me without doing testing, right? So I can mm. tell them 100% this is why this is what we should do. And the majority of the time I can say it with confidence. I know that we're doing the right thing. I know there's nothing else we can do. Mm-hmm. But there are times because of financial constraints when maybe they ask that of me to say, yes, you're making the right decision without me having all the testing done for me to tell them that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really hard. That's really hard to do that because, you know, I want to know the answer. That's my brain. I want to know the answer. I want to know, can I fix this? And if I can, I want to fix it. And so I was always afraid to be a veterinarian too, is I yeah. feel like I'd have a hobby farm with 10,000 animals because you took them all home. I would take them. them all home. Well, that would be, I'd go broke. I'd be broke. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we all take them home from time to time. That's for sure. There's no way around that. But, but also I, I, you know, really feel strongly that it's, it's a relationship between the human and the animal and just because you can fix something, like someone can fix that animal, doesn't mean that's fair to ask that of the client. I think in the beginning of this, you referenced the idea of like having an animal surrendered. Mm. I have mixed feelings on the whole surrender thing, to be honest. I have, I've done it. I've seen it happen. Um, there are cases when I'm really happy that we did it. One time I had a golden retriever that had a pyometra, so an infection of the uterus. Mm. This dog was, it was their breeding golden retriever, like middle-aged, and they got tons of puppies from this pup, this dog and made lots of money from her, and she had a pyometra, and they didn't want to treat it. And I was upset because this dog can be fixed. You know, we can do a surgery, we can fix this dog. It was sick, but not like, not so sick that it wouldn't have had a good outcome from surgery at least expected outcome. And I asked if she could surrender this dog to me, and then I would find a home for it. I couldn't take it home, but I knew I would find a home for this dog. And she refused. She didn't want to treat it, and but she didn't want me to have it. And that was so difficult and I spent probably a half an hour at least when I had no time to be doing this in the middle of my busy day in the room with her basically just begging her to let me have this dog so that I didn't need to euthanize it and I don't know sometimes certain cases just get under your skin in certain cases you're gonna feel like you want to fight that fight and others you can't emotionally you know there was something about this particular dog I really really loved her and I I really felt so badly for her that she has produced so many puppies for this owner and yet they wouldn't even give her that dignity of of, yeah. of even being surrendered. That doesn't even feel like a good human-animal bond. No, why there wasn't. Even... And I, I think that's what bothered me the most is that this dog lived outside in a kennel. Uh, and I'm I... I'm going to keep my own personal thoughts in my mouth. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I 
I just. I'm not going to keep my thirst personal. Don't have a dog if you're going to keep it outside. Unless you have sled dogs. Yeah. Where they in Alaska and they want to be outside and they're for a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Why do you have pets if you're just going to have them outside? Yeah. <sighs> so I really desperately wanted this pet, this dog, to be a pet, to have a chance at life that was not like the one that it already had. And I think that's why that's one really got to me. So after begging for quite some time, I got her to surrender the dog to me. I had her sign everything, so it was all on the up and up and legal. And um, I did the surgery, and the dog did well. And then um, one of our staff members adopted her. Mm. Good. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that was the outcome, because I was yeah. worried you were going to say something no. else. But in general, and I talk to people about this a lot, because I very much respect the relationship that people have with their animals. And there's many people who feel like their animal, they don't want them to go through having surgery. They don't want them to go through being on daily medication. And they think the best thing for their animal is euthanasia versus choosing treatment. And as long as the client really understands what it means, because a lot of their fears are unfounded, you know, Mm -hmm. and they really understand what it means. And it's not as scary as I think it is. And we can talk through the finances and we can make it work. But they still really feel strongly that's the best thing for their pet. I think it's unethical of me as a veterinarian to say, surrender this pet to me, I'll give it the life it should get. Mm -hmm. And who are you to make this call for your pet? I think that's wrong. Because that I, didn't feel like that scenario you just no, described. No, no, that didn't. That was a that was a unique situation for the life that this dog had previously had, and like you said, the lack of human animal bond between this person and the animal. But for most people, they have that bond. They love their pet. They're sad. They're crying when they're making this decision, and I respect that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's right for me to say. Science, take, let me take this pet. I can, why can't you fix this? I can fix this. That's right. not right. right. That's not right for me to do that. So that whole aspect of surrendering, I think that's a, I think that there's a lot of nuance there and I think you have to be really careful about how you venture through that world. Yeah. So. I, I was watching, you know, one of the vet shows. Yeah. <laughs> However long ago, it's been many years now. Yeah. And someone had brought their healer in. And it had been bitten by a rattlesnake. Oh, yeah. And they didn't have the $200 for the antivenom. And they just had to give it, like, Tylenol and let it sit there and work yeah. through the system. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, glad I'm not a vet because I yeah. would be broke. Yeah. I And I totally understand every yeah. aspect of why that's not feasible. Yeah. yeah. I just, uh, what, what, why? Yeah. Why can't you pay $200? I get yeah. that finances are a problem, but why yeah. do you have this dog if you can't have... Well, I get exactly. not spending $7,000 on a surgery. Okay. Right. Yeah. But. $200. Uh, yeah. And that's exactly where. And I'm I'm lucky in that those cases are not very common in our, our situation here where if it's a $200 fix, most people can come up with $200. It's the more expensive ones they really can't do, which many cases those are really sick and do need a lot of care. And I understand not being able to do that. But yeah, those cases are the ones that really, really, really make you frustrated because you think, again, why do you have this pet? If you can't even afford $200, why do you even have this pet? It's morally yeah. distressing. And I always think about, like, I go to Costco and I see people's carts and I see how much money 
they have in their carts and they're checking out and those are the same people that are coming and saying I can't how dare you ask me to spend you know three hundred dollars for this treatment I know you just spent four hundred dollars at Costco on your pizza rolls you know <laughs> <laughs> that would be so hard yeah in a small community because you're right yeah. you're gonna see people out in the public yeah and like a therapist or any other doctor yeah you know, you're not necessarily wanting to be like, hey, so-and-so, <laughs> no, what's no. up with your pizza roll? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, those boundaries, again, boundaries yeah. are so boundaries vitally are... important. Yeah. Absolutely. Is that why you don't live nearby? Well, it's a it's a perk. <laughs> <laughs> but I still shop at the Costco up here on my way home. I run into clients. No. Um, That's I, funny. Yeah, it's... And, it, you know, as a veterinarian, too, again, it's like this, I think the thing that I really can't stand is when people say to me, well, they're just a cat, mm. or they're just a dog, or they're already 12 years old. I mean, how much longer can they live? Why would I, you know, why would I extract this bad tooth, make it feel better? Because if I spend $500 now, it's only going to live two more years, and that's not even worth it. Yeah. Would you say that about your child? Yeah. Or and a family it, it's member? just like... Young, when I was younger in my career, I probably held my tongue more than I do now, to be honest. <laughs> I just had one say that to me the other day. It was a, a chihuahua that had a tooth root abscess and just needs this bad tooth extracted. And I'm not going to live much longer. Why would I spend that money? And I said, you know what? I don't think in those terms. I don't think in the terms of, like, it's going to live two years, so why would I spend this money on it? I think in the terms of, is living with me right now? And I wanted to be happy and have a good quality of life. And that's my job as its as its owner to take good care of it. So I said that. And he didn't like it. I don't know if he'll be back. <laughs> well, I hope he went somewhere and got the tooth extracted. I hope so. Because you clearly don't want the animal to suffer. And that's, and that's being why, the advocate was what right, you were doing. And that's why, that's why we take a lot of abuse from clients is because at the end of the day, I want that pet taken care of. Yeah. So I'll hold my tongue a lot of times. I will let you yell and scream at me at, at times. I will I will forgive a lot of bad behavior because if it means that animal is going to come to me and I'm going to extract that tooth and relieve its discomfort. But mm. that is why it's hard to be a vet. <laughs> and that's why you go home and you have to have good appropriately appropriate outlets of that are healthy and good exercise and good nutrition and good care time with your family because it's really easy to get into that spiral yeah yeah um the last kind of big point i made is just to come back to the point that veterinarians are animal doctors they're not therapists (laughs) um they spend a lot of time and money learning their trade but they didn't go to school for psychology no so stop using them for that yeah Try to keep your comments to, you know, what's relevant. And if you got to really just vomit out some emotion and make it quick <laughs> so yeah. you can get to the point. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind a little bit for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty used to it. I mean, I like having, again, I like having relationships with my clients. I like knowing to a degree about their lives. You know, I mean, I'm... I'm a huge introvert. I am not an outgoing person. It's really funny because one time a client said to me, well, you must be an extrovert, right? And I'm like, where would she get that from? I, you know, it, it's, I read an article recently about how, from a veterinarian's perspective, saying for every 12-hour day, I need 48 hours at home to recover from it. And <laughs> You're I'm, definitely an introvert. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm probably not that extreme, but... 
yeah, I, I like having talks. I like, you know, knowing what you do for a living. Like, you know, people have interesting lives and they've done interesting things. I like talking to people, but you know, at the end of the day, I am not, I I don't get my emotional feed from speaking with chatting with people yeah. and you only have so much time of the day and you and have, have so much time many the day. more people to see and many yeah. more animals to yeah see. yeah and i would like to go home and talk to my husband <laughs> <laughs> we're almost there I <laughs> uh, so the last article i have and this is really getting to the what can we do going forward situation mm-hmm. this article came out in the nasw newsletter the social work smart brief in september of uh this year and this was actually the top story. My boss sent me this because oh, yeah. she knows that I uh, kind of balance my world and animals. Mm-hmm. And it's titled, Need to Make Tough Decisions About Your Pet? A Veterinary Social Worker Can Help. So I'm not going to read this whole long article, but some of the things that they mentioned is kind of what a veterinary social worker is. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it makes sense. I honestly don't know much of anything about veterinary social workers. I think that must be a new emerging yeah, fairly, yeah. fairly new. Yeah. Um, they talk about, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing, well, we'll come to that at the end. <laughs> uh, so basically, veterinary social workers are kind of the liaisons between patients and veterinarians. So they're helping them with making decisions in grief and loss. They're mm-hmm. doing bereavement work afterwards. They're okay. also facilitating support for the staff. Okay. So yeah. just kind of all of that psychological stuff that you weren't trained for. Yeah. It's kind of, hi, I see you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of what everything that social workers do, but right. specifically geared towards right. veterinary medicine. Yeah. Apparently the first program was in 2002, so it's been around okay. for a little while, but not big, obviously. Okay. Um, there are three certificates that I'm going to look into just because I want to know. No kidding, um, yeah. But it talks about compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. um, helping with job stress, euthanasia, dealing with emotional and demanding clients. <laughs> <laughs> and demanding clients, you know who you are because I talked to you earlier this week. <laughs> I promise I wouldn't mention you, but I know who you are. <laughs> and uh, that the study that they were looking at showed that 11,620 veterinarians uh, had died between 1979 and, and 2015. And that seems like a long time, but 11,600 is a lot. Mm-hmm. That, that is a lot. And there's not that many of us. Right. There's not nearly as many of us as there are doctors. MDs. Yeah. There's only 28, well, I think maybe now 30 schools in the country. My class size was 70. So wow. There's not that many of us. That just surprises me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so they talk about the challenging relationship between humans and their animal companions, people treating their pets more like children, expecting them to be treated accordingly by veterinarians, which is part of the problem, right? Because Mm -hmm. medicine in general has not cut up to animal medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't even, like you said, take care of our own people, let alone Mm -hmm. animals. Mm -hmm. There apparently is a veterinary social worker at Summit Veterinary Referral Center in Tacoma. So there is one in this general vicinity, um, in case you need to know. But yeah, so at the end here, it talks about that it gets back to really having no training with people, and that's mm-hmm. not really your job to do mm-hmm. that. And so ultimately, it's the mental health perspective, supporting the clients, supporting yeah. the staff, and that's their yeah. their role. Yeah. So that's what that whole article is about: is hey, there is this kind of emerging social worker position relating to veterinarians, and I I feel like it's kind of like how they've been doing embedded social work in police. 
oh, work. Yeah. Okay. So social work can do so many different things, and it really is about that systematic approach to people and whatever their relationship is to whatever. Yeah. And this just happens to be veterinarians, but I just keep thinking, who's paying for this? Right. Like, unless you're a giant clinic, right? Or if a you so if you were school, a big corporation and you had that as one of your services, yeah. Or unless like you were contracted with the clinic mm-hmm. as a private social worker. I mean, I don't. Right. I don't know. Like you were saying earlier, you're you're not rolling in the dough here. No. Yeah. So to add another layer of that, yeah, it'd be great. Right. But afford I mean feasibility of mm-hmm. being able to pay for that and social workers aren't cheap either. No. Um so I, I just can't imagine unless you're a corporation or a big clinic right. how you'd be able how to do provide that. that. When I was in school at Tufts, um, we had a student-run program called Pet Lot Support Hotline. Mm-hmm. And so I did that when I was in my first and second year of school before I started clinics. And um, basically just, like, man a phone. Mm-hmm. And anyone can call you from, it's you know, a national hotline. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe people who are thinking about euthanizing or have recently euthanized or going through some loss with their pets. And I remember being like a little like, you know, 20, early 20 something and like trying to like talk to people. No idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I would like to think I help some people. But... So there, I know that that has been around for a while, various mm-hmm. like hotlines for pet loss support. But I think the idea of having a social worker is a great one. I mean, I, this is news to me, so I, I'm probably going to mull this over and do some research, <laughs> try to get as much information as I can on this one. But I think that that would be really helpful for people because it is hard. Like you leave, I always tell people like when I give them a diagnosis or give them a lot of information, like, okay, I just, I just threw a lot of information at you. Like what questions do you have for me? But oftentimes people either don't feel comfortable, talk, don't feel comfortable asking questions or feel like they need to go home and process it and they have more questions or yeah, they don't just don't really know how to navigate. Like, they've maybe never euthanized a dog before. They literally just don't know how it's done, you right. know, and don't feel comfortable talking about it because some people don't feel comfortable talking about death. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be a great tool to have, like, a social worker. Just one thing to consider would be maybe even um, there are hospice veterinarians, like, specifically they do in-home hospice and they do in-home euthanasia. And maybe even like rolling it into something like that where you have someone if they had an interest I mean I would assume someone who is a hospice veterinarian a lot of them have an interest in having more of that discussion with clients and being playing more of a therapist role a social worker role than you would as a general practitioner because Mm -hmm. it's such it's what you do all the time every day (laughs) you know so you probably feel really comfortable with it and you're in a different scenario where you're in someone's home completely dedicated to that person in that moment you're not in a clinic where you have an emergency that can walk in or a patient in the kennel that needs your to be looked at or a patient under anesthesia that needs to be looked at like you are completely focused on that person Mm -hmm. so perhaps you know it can be kind of rolled into like that scenario I don't know yeah but I think it's I think it's a great discussion at least yeah yeah, I have a, a whole long page of supports. I used to do uh, try to facilitate a pet loss group, yeah. but it was only once a month, and I feel like people going through pet loss because it's also disenfranchised grief, just right. like veterinarians have. Yeah, um, It's not necessarily supported via the community that no. is allowed to have grief. Yes, yeah. 
so I just do now individual pet loss okay. through my hospice. Yeah. Um, but I, and we also offer staff support for all the local veterinarians. Yeah. So of course you're welcome to that <laughs> that service. Yeah. Um, but we do do kind of outreach to the vet clinics locally through mm-hmm. the bereavement program. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I hope that it's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think a lot of people need that. I I talk to people about how even. I think that we need some kind of ceremony at death, and I think that's why we do funerals and everything for people, because you need some kind of acknowledgement that this is what happened, and it's a time to come together and talk about it, and I think that's what makes pet loss really difficult at times, is because we don't have anything like that. We don't have any ceremony associated with it. And you can, like, if you call out to work, a lot of people who don't have pets would be like, why are you calling out to work because you put your cat down like this? Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? And not everyone's just understanding, and not everyone has a relationship with pets that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I kind of question how you are as an individual if you don't <laughs> love pets the way I do, but but not everyone's the same way. Not everyone was raised that way, you know. So it's really hard. I mean, like, to lose your pet is, in some ways, I've had people say this, like, they cry more over losing their pet than losing their parent, you know. Well, what I've found, speaking specifically of that, what I've found is oftentimes pet loss is connected to something else in your life right what are all the things that happened in the life of that pet mm-hmm. and and when that pet is lost mm-hmm. all of those other things are triggered yeah you absolutely. know when my father yeah. died I didn't cry yeah three years later my yeah. dog had to be put to sleep yeah in the ripe old age of however old he was yeah plenty old enough yeah and I bawled for a week yeah and absolutely was connected to that you yeah. know it could be connected to divorce yeah or child loss or yeah. moving or yeah graduating that's a grief and we don't think about that Um, I do have a whole long grief thing planned coming up hopefully Um, but I've done an episode on pet loss specifically Mm -hmm. and it's it's just as significant of a grief as anything else we lose it is so yeah uh, yeah so is there anything else I know we've talked a little bit about self-care I -hmm. think that is vitally important as well yeah Um, anything we didn't cover that you want people to know be aware of I think I want my closing statement (laughs) to be that I love what I do. At the end of the day, I truly do. And there are some days when it's really, really hard. And I think, why don't I have a normal job? What is wrong with me that I've chosen this path for myself? And why do I push myself this hard? And why, why is my life so hard? And I also have to acknowledge that this is how I'm wired. And there's really no other way that I would be satisfied being and that I have to help that I have to give and that um, but that doesn't mean that I want to compromise myself in doing that and that has been the challenge for me as an individual and I think it's a challenge for us as a profession that just because we want to give a certain amount and because we love these animals and that bond doesn't mean that we are not individuals that have our own whole lives you know we want to have families we want to have quality time with our pets and with our family at home we want to be able to like have activities that we do we want to we want to be complete individuals and we deserve that and we deserve respect like any other complete individual and I I guess that's really what I want to advocate is that everyone deserves respect I don't want it to be an us against them 
I don't want people to listen to this and think I just spent an hour bashing clients. It's not about that. You know, it's, it's that I will always give you respect and you give me respect and understand how hard it is for what we do. And it's really hard for people to have pets and to go through traumatic times and grief. But in order to work really hard and to provide as much as we're giving, we have to take care of ourselves. And that ultimately comes down to your own personal decision and taking care of yourself. It is my job and no one else's to take care of myself. So it's not me posting on Facebook saying, be nice to your vets, how dare you post these bad reviews or stop harassing vets. It is my job to not let those things bother me. It is my job to set my boundaries. It is my job to advocate for us as a profession and getting the awareness out there. And and yeah, we, we set the stage, we set the stage of how we're treated. You know, I, I've always said this, I was like, you train people how they teach you, you know? And how, so if, if I'm going to let people walk all over me, they're gonna continue to walk all over me. Um, and so there's times when you just have to fire a client or say no, or say, nope, I can't work, I'm going home. Or So that's, that's my job as an individual to do that. And I think that's how we're gonna be able to help ourselves as a profession and in regards to the suicide rate specifically. And get some therapy. <laughs> yes, therapy. I think everyone needs therapy. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Cannot agree more. Yeah, that's uh, that's really the point of this whole podcast is every episode is hopefully, well, most episodes, some are just fun, but yeah. um, that, we, that we look at this as likely we have one life to live and what are we doing with it and yeah. how can we make it better for all of us and let's explore the things that we're not familiar with let's explore things that are scary and unknown because if you don't know you can't fix what you're doing right and so now that you know a little bit more listeners about you know veterinary medicine and what's behind the scenes and what people are going through maybe it will make it a little easier to have those discussions with your vets be compassionate for what they're going through Mm -hmm. as well as what you're going through yeah and then you can uh improve that bond yeah Absolutely. And ultimately, healthy animals. And and that's what what my oath is for, is is helping the animals. That's that's why I come to work every day. Good job, Sweeney. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for talking about this.